Hi there, this is Steve, but this isn't the beginning of the show. Before we begin, I invite you to check out my free masterclass called The Surprising Path to Excellence. If you're an entrepreneur, business owner, or leader with financial responsibility in your company, you'll definitely not want to miss this one. I'll cover how a winning strategy combined with operational excellence drives higher cash flow and firm value. You can watch it for free at cultbar.com. I'll also link it in the show notes below. I hope you enjoy it. You're listening to the Strategic Financial Leadership Podcast, a podcast for entrepreneurs, business leaders, and professionals who want to elevate their game and reach new levels of abundance and success. I'm Steve Coffrin, the founder of Coltvar, and I've spent my entire career growing and turning around companies, and together we'll explore the latest happenings in the world of strategy and finance. Let's do this. Before we begin, just remember that this podcast is for educational purposes and the information shared herein should not be construed as legal, tax, or investment advice. Check out our terms and conditions in the show notes to learn more. Now on to the show. Jessica, welcome to the Strategic Financial Leadership Podcast. I'm excited for this one. I, so, I'm excited too. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You have a very interesting background, which I'm excited to get into. But before we get into that, I'm, I'm always curious about how people get to where they are, right? So like you've, you've done a lot in business, you got your uh, degrees, your MBA and so on and so forth. What led you to this like passion for business? Like when you were a kid, were you interested in business or is this something that just like developed over time? Oh, so I am not passionate about business. I'm passionate about building stuff and business skills, entrepreneurial thinking. It happens to be the tools that I use, right? So mm -hmm. I actually growing up for a good two decades of my life would have just been you know, shocked to think of myself ever in the future doing anything entrepreneurial or starting, you know, an organization, let alone a for-profit organization or even a B Corp. I thought the world was divided into givers and takers, right? The good guys and the bad guys. And I thought, well, for sure, I want to be on the right team. I will go be a part of the, the team that's giving, that's trying to help, right? Trying to serve the world, trying to add I mean, it's so funny, add value, but in the way that I believed um, it should be added. I, I wanted to work with folks that saw and were moved by the suffering that I was made aware of as a kid and a teenager. And I thought, I want to go be around the people that are thinking about that and working on solving these big social problems that may or may not creep into our own privileged lives but that exists. So like that, I don't want to waste my time on other crap. I don't want to make something that nobody needs and then like trick people into buying it and giving me their money. So that's how I saw the world. Now, fast forward, by the way, you know, I'm, I'm not a hater. It all works out. Sorry, spoiler. <laughs> but so as I learned and grew as, as a person and realized, you know, got a little less dogmatic, realized the world was not so black and white like that. And in particular, after I graduated college, where I was totally uninterested in business or entrepreneurship, but I, I studied philosophy. I studied poetry and political science. And it, all of those things helped me ask and answer big questions about how the world worked and what was right, what was good to do with one's life, right? What was the whole point of it all? So I graduate with a lot of heart, a lot of big thoughts, a lot of passion. I moved because I was in love with a boy in California, not at all like a strategic career decision, just <laughs> flung myself to the other side of the country. And I ended up 
<laughs> day two, getting a temp job as an admin at, ready, drum roll, the Stanford Graduate School of Business. And I want you to know, like, I worried about my soul because I thought, oh my gosh, here I am. I need to pay my rent, but here I am at the business school. This is terrible. A few things. One, it turned out that the 10th job was in this um, research center called the Center for Social Innovation, where like every day, these amazing luminaries and students were just walking through those doors thinking about how to use all of the tools, all of the ways of thinking that they were learning in their classes to solve social problems. Like they were my people. They didn't just have these big hearts. They were super smart and strategic about moving moving people and resources around. And I was like, whoa, (laughs) they are getting things done that matter. I want to do that. So very, very quickly, I realized maybe I was wrong. Maybe business in and of itself isn't evil. Maybe it can be used for good. So I paid a little more attention. And then over time, I worked there three years, actually, like my job evolved and changed. And I felt like I got to be really close to a lot of really incredible people. And I got to see paths forward. And I got to glimpse these dream jobs that I hoped to go get myself 10 or 20 years down the road. But I knew I was not going to get there staying exactly where I was. So I ended up one day staying late after work and hearing this guy, Dr. Muhammad Yunus speak. And of course, for anyone who doesn't know, he is the uh, one of the pioneers of modern microfinance and won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2006 for his pioneering work in that area. But this was fall of 03, three years before he would get that recognition. Although of course it already made a ton of, I mean, had done decades worth of incredible work, but he was new to me. So I hear him speak and I think that's what I want to go do. And I quit my job at Stanford. And then I moved to East Africa, learned about microfinance and that launched me into my first venture. It was a long answer, but that's the answer. So back up, because I mean, you (laughs) just said that last part casually where you just packed up and then you moved to East Africa. So talk about that. I mean, that, that took a lot of courage, right? I guess, you know, I learned later in business school because I ended up going back as a paying student, not just a staffer that like crashed lectures. I learned later that I'm quite risk tolerant, like good to know. But at the time, it just felt fun. Like this will be a fun adventure and a great story no matter what happens. It didn't feel it didn't feel courageous to be totally frank with you. Other things have, but not that that felt exciting. (laughs) <laughs> so, okay. You know, you said before you had this ideology about like business where you said, okay, there's givers and takers and you saw like inequality or suffering or, or, or things just revolving around money. And, and you talk about this in your Ted talk, which is excellent by the way. Thank you. Um, so talk more about that. Like where did that even start just from a young age? Did you just think like, okay, there's the good guys, the bad guys, their business is bad, you know, and it's a bad vehicle out there. Yeah, and, I mean, and I want to do things differently. I mean, where did this mindset come yeah, from? Yeah. I mean, it, it's funny. I've actually, I thought a lot about this in the last few years. I have four kids and as a parent reading them story after story after story, it's a pretty formulaic, <laughs> I guess, unfolding of story and a lot of the kids books that cross our path. And there's often very clear villains, right? And you think of, I mean, name a villain. They're probably a rich evil guy, like in like in a lot of stories that we encounter, right? I actually had a deck at one point. I'm trying to remember the pictures in there, but from Scrooge to Lex Luthor, right? They're like rich mean guys. So anyway, um, I don't think it's that crazy to <laughs> grow up seeing the world that way and to have some sort of suspicion and association around, well, who's hoarding all this stuff and who are they taking it from? I mean, Robin Hood, right? Like, come on, it's it's pretty classic. It's not like a brand new idea that I came up with. So I think that that's my like, you know, sort of jokey answer. But, but quite frankly, I was raised in this wonderful, just ridiculously loving, supportive family. We went to church every Sunday. I absorbed a lot of those stories about what it meant to show up in the world and what my calling was, if you will. It might sound cheesy and, and naive to think back and, and look at a five or six or seven year old kid feeling like they had a calling, but I really did. I mean, 
I remember little glimpses, little bits and pieces of the Bible stories that really shaped how I saw the world. And, you know, I remember being told that the poor would always be with us and that that scared the pants off me. Like what? There, this problem is never going away. There's always going to be suffering and sadness and it's in the form of poverty. And, you know, hey, heads up, this is a thing that you're always going to encounter. So here's your warning. But then also being told what you do for the least of these you do for me. So like the thing that one does to connect with something higher, something bigger than themselves and to kind of help out God <laughs> right, is serve the poor, show up and like do something, contribute, meet, meet with people who are in the midst of this brokenness and this pain and this lack and encounter them with love and kindness and generosity. And that's like the work that's big picture, the work of life, like show up and be loving to people. Now, I, I don't know how many of your guests talk this, this much about all these touchy feely things, but I, I, I really saw it as a very practical directive. So then, then it became about strategy, if you will, right? Like, all right, well, if that's my job, what does that look like? Who's doing that? And as I looked around, often the people out there in the world meeting the needs of the poor, I saw a lot of them in, in churches and religious institutions that I encountered. And then I also saw them in nonprofits and NGOs, a lot of well-intentioned organizations trying to be helpful. And often the way I knew about them was because they sought me. I mean, anyone really, a would-be donor, sometimes volunteer to join in, right? They, and they, they, they gave me this very specific way of participating. And again, it was, it was always financial. So it wasn't, hey, Jess, we need you to show up and work with us day to day necessarily, even though that's what I yearned for. I wanted to be a participant. What I was told even as a kid was, <laughs> hey, drop your spare change in the UNICEF box at Halloween or call this 1-800 number and sponsor a child or whatever it was. And by doing so, by giving money, you'll be swooping in and saving a life. And it it was, at least there was a way, but that way really didn't feel very satisfying to me. It became a transaction and not an interaction, not a deep understanding and knowing and that not a connection that I wanted. So I did that. I did that and I felt pretty unsatisfied. And I felt like this cycle of giving a little bit, feeling better about myself and then feeling okay until I remembered again that the problems weren't going away or they hadn't yet. And that there was more need until the other, the next infomercial popped up, <laughs> the next nonprofit letter that I was being sent, even as a kid, because I donated one time three years ago, you know, that would show up. As, so the next sad story was always just waiting to drop. So my experience was not that satisfying. I, I started to become jaded is way too strong of a word, not, not for me, but like I was hardened to the stories. And I also thought I had heard all the stories, which is a really important facet for me. The stories I heard were of sadness, suffering, desperation, hopelessness, on and on. And they were well-crafted marketing materials to get me to feel a certain set of feelings and then act from those feelings. What I never heard until I went <laughs> to East Africa to do this unpaid internship right after college or a few years after college. I never had heard stories like the ones I heard then. I heard stories of, in fact, entrepreneurship and triumph and hope. I had heard, I heard from goat herders and seamstresses and you know kiosk owners and just people doing very simple, straightforward, day-to-day activities that you know benefited themselves and their families and allowed them to have a, a at least a hope at a sustainable livelihood. Their stories weren't just the brochures, right? The poster children type stories that I'd heard. They had depth and color and actually, goodness, right? God forbid, they had hope and a, a positive thread. They had optimism woven through them. They had they already had made progress, perhaps, and they just needed this next thing, which 
was access to fair capital. And that's sort of where Kiva began. So, I mean, how did you even begin Kiva? I mean, did you just like set up a website and just mm-hmm. you know, start reaching out to people? <laughs> I mean, it is probably yeah. a little clunky at first, but tell me like, how did you go about starting something from nothing and then building it into this like billion dollar platform? Yeah. Well, it really clunky is generous. So it was me tromping around East Africa with this really old donated digital camera and stopping at internet cafes with a dial-up connection, which gosh, I mean, I have like visceral reaction, even just thinking of that. Remember that old tone? Anyway. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. So in the middle of Uganda, like waiting for the stars to align and getting power and getting internet and all the things. So that was my role in the first seven borrowers that were our sort of pilot round of loans. They needed about $3,000. And the website to which I was uploading all the information had been quickly drafted by my co-founder, Matt, who was back in San Francisco. So that was the team at the beginning, just the two of us. I was, I was, I was back in business school as people were repaying those, um, that first $3,000, but that was really just friends and family that we had spammed and said, Hey, we think this is legal. We think people will pay back like fingers crossed. Will you, will you help? And it, it wasn't even that we had online payment processing. It was literally my grandma handing me a 20 and it was, it was super, super offline. I remember we wired money from our personal account to our friend's personal account in Uganda and they distributed the cash. And then over the six months following that, the spring of 05 to October of 05, collected bills and coins and got the money back and then repaid. And that was the, that was the very illustrious first round of loans. At that point, October of 05, we said, well, this clearly works. <laughs> and we took the word bait off of the site and we did another dozen loans. And then we did another few dozen and on and on. In that first official year of October 05 to 06, we went from that 3000 pilot round of loans to a $500,000 year. The next one was a $15 million year. The next was 40, the next 100 and on and on. And it's at least one and a half, if not 1.6 billion today. And the website's always smarter than I am. So I can go check, but it's, it's grown. It's grown quite a bit. Now, what types of hoops did you have to jump through from like a regulatory standpoint, you know, doing this in another country? I mean, there's there's a a bunch of things you probably had to figure out. Was that challenging for you? We did. We did. And then we also didn't. I mean, it was very much a ready, fire, aim at some point, check in and try to ask for forgiveness scenario (laughs) to smush together a bunch of cliches. We did like cold call the SEC and they had kind of great customer service at the time. And we described what we wanted to do. It was a very big deal that we it was a 0% loan from lender to borrower and back. Yes, the lenders work. So a lender would contribute and still does, you know, 25 or 50 or whatever dollars on the side. It goes through Kiva without Kiva touching any of it or taking a cut. It goes through the hands of the microfinance institution, these partners on the ground that actually find borrowers, administer loans, collect repayments, et cetera. And those borrowers do pay interest that's fair and appropriate and set by the microfinance institutions, those partners. Sometimes it's 10, 20%, sometimes it's even more, but whatever it is, it makes sense in that context. There's often a lot of handholding, a lot of just a ton of administrative costs to administering and a loan and collecting payments and often doing a lot of training to somebody in a village that's off the grid, right? Miles and miles away. So it makes sense. All the partners are vetted and tested and and all that good stuff. So the borrower does repay with interest. The interest is kept by the partners and then the principal passes back through through Kiva and then it back into the hands of lenders with, with, with caveats, like lenders do take on currency risk and, and default risk. It's very friendly for giving capital and $25 at a time that works. So it's a pretty powerful source that's become more attractive than certain other sources over the years for MFIs and, and borrowers. And also, you know, in my beautiful utopian view of things, I'd like to believe, and I know this anecdotally,
individually. But many borrowers feel better receiving a loan that's that's been ponied up by a dozen or two dozen friendly individuals around the planet that know their story and are rooting for them. It's very different than just, you know, here's some credit from a bank. Well, let's talk about this because, you know, I've read books like When Helping Hurts and there's no other books out there and talks and articles. And, you know, and it, it sometimes people are well-intentioned. They want to go out there. They want to help other people, right? They just don't know how to do it. Or sometimes you do things and, you know, so you'll go out there and, you know, whether you go out and, and install a bunch of wells with pumps and then the pumps, you know, eventually break down, you can't maintain them and it creates more issues. Or you go down and you give shoes away to people, but then it hurts the shoemakers in the local economy. I mean, so there's... A a lot of things that you can do to try to help, but it actually, it can hurt economies. It can hurt communities and it, it can hurt individuals. What type of experience did you have through all this with like microfinance and, and how do you see that being different than just like giving somebody money? The only thing I can claim is that I have tried to do my best staying aware, being a good listener, I hope to people that I hope that I, that I aim to, to serve and to be useful to, but it's a constant recalibration and a discipline, I think for anybody, look, anybody that wants to serve any customer, <laughs> you can't just assume the things that were true for them yesterday are true today. You can't assume that there aren't ripple effects beyond what you might be able to see. You, you have to follow those through and, and see where they go as, as, as much as you can, but there are always going to be unintended consequences. So I think operating with humility, operating in a way that is like as a practice, as an organization, you're continually trying to get feedback and to refine and innovate and iterate on what you're doing. I think there, there has to be a freshness to all the pieces, right? To the assumptions that you have, to your theories of change, to what you believe to be true about the interaction you're having and what results that creates. So of course, things that won't always go as planned or as hoped for that's just going to happen. And I think great organizations see it and steer away from that and, and change change what they're doing. I think, look, the, 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 the simple, and air quotes, nobody can see my air quotes, the simple check for me is how deeply and truly involved are the end recipients of what you're building or making or distributing. So like I've been on boards, for example, where we talk hours and hours and hours about, you know, somebody who needs this thing that the, the organization makes but yeah, there's nobody like that in the room. And so I've tried everywhere I am to change that, whether it's working for an organization I, I created myself or at other institutions. I think the closer you can be connected, the more regularly you can be connected with who you're serving, the less severe those mistakes are and the less frequent. Sure. And I absolutely agree as far as like listening to the customer and, and constantly listening to the customer because the assumptions change, right? Right. And I think that's really important. So let me ask you this. How has your viewpoint or your relationship with money changed over time? I mean, because when you're younger, you might've seen it and I'm, I'm putting you know words in your mouth or make an assumption here that maybe it was evil and you know the, the villains have all the money, right? But then over time, mm -hmm. you can see the power of money and you're like, wow, this actually can change people's lives. Talk to me about like, how has that evolved and, and what's your thought process on that? Hey, real quick, I hope you're enjoying this episode. If you're an entrepreneur or business leader and you want to take your game to the next level or you want to avoid being crushed out there during these uncertain times, be sure to check out our free masterclass called The Surprising Path to Excellence by visiting cultivar.com or through our Boosting Your Financial IQ app. I'll link this in the show notes as well. I'm also offering some freebies, so be sure to check it out. Now back to the show. 
Um, I'm making a decision to give you a shorter than longer answer because it's such a rabbit hole. I think my short-ish answer is I have a healthy disregard, <laughs> I think, and I hope, I wish everybody did. I have a healthy disregard for money in and of itself. It's all, I mean, obviously I'm saying obvious things. It's a means to an end, always, always, always. And I yeah. feel, I still have a healthy disrespect, I think, for excess I have friends who I love deeply who work in luxury goods and a lot of fancy stuff. The numbers, I mean, the number, the, the amount of zeros after, <laughs> after the digits that in, in industries that they work in or in the prices of goods that they sell, it, it, it's just, it's not my jam. It's not where I care to focus. And I, I see a world where I have both a passion for and a burden for the majority world where like life is not like that. Mm-hmm. And so I have this, I get, there's a skepticism that I have. I want to deal with it and talk about it and use it in as much as it gets the things done I want to get done. Other than that, I'm just in and of itself. It's not the, it's not the thing itself. It never is, never will be, you know. Talk to me then about this new venture, this new fund, Untapped Capital. Where did that idea come from? And what are you trying to accomplish with that? Yeah. So over the last 20 years, I've also been involved on, um, as, as we say it, on the other side of the table, right? I've been both an entrepreneur building staff and an investor having the privilege of supporting other entrepreneurs in their journeys. And at the other, I've worked at all, all sorts of funds and they've all had a common thread. And especially the companies that I've been really proud to support have a common thread. They're not always directly like on the nose impact companies, but they're thoughtful about their place in the world. And they have a broad perspective on risk and opportunity and sustainability. They, they think about, um, they, they follow through, as I said, all of the possible consequences, not just for stakeholders, but shareholders more broadly. So that perspective has always been common. Untapped in particular, my partner, Yohei, who's been a friend for years, came to me with his perspective on this, with his thesis about a year and a half, two years ago, saying, I want to build a fund from scratch where we get to focus on under-networked individuals who have great ideas, who by the nature of, and it's it's, it's interesting because it gets at a lot of other, I think, social justice (laughs) themes and elements that are often approached by just drawing a circle around a single gender or a single demographic of some kind. But when you look at the handful of sort of personas that we see as under an under-networked or an unexpected founder, the common theme there, yes, there a lot of them are going to be women. Many will be minorities. Many will be living in certainly not in giant cities or tech hubs across the country, but there are people out there that have phenomenal ideas, phenomenal potential, and yet don't have access to not just the resources that they need, but the people that can help them access those resources. And so Yohei and I each have pretty beautiful and non-overlapping networks. So when we brought those two together, we've been able to find, well, anyway, there's a lot of pieces to this, but basically what we want to do and what we have been doing is sharing those networks with the founders that we fund. And Yohei's just, I can't say enough about him. He's just through and through an amazing human being. I mean, if I would have said, how can I help to anything he was building, no matter what it was. But this in particular felt like such a a beautiful fit for us to build together. He reads everything. He cold calls or cold emails everybody. The top of the funnel for us is huge. And one of the pieces of the thesis as well that I I guess I should have mentioned right away, it's not just funding, you know, under-networked founders, but it's finding them, finding them early, which means outreach. So the many, many funds rely on deal flow that's incoming and, and pretty passive or, you know, a lot of folks end up talking about and then fighting to get in on the same deals. For us, we're doing something different in that 
the majority of the companies we fund will be found through outreach. So we're going to find those entrepreneurs who are right at the beginning of their journeys. And oftentimes, Yohei or I are, we're the first venture capitalists they've ever spoken to. Even They're not even raising money yet, but we're there and we're ready and waiting if and when they are and it's a fit. So we're able to find them early, get in early. It's actually very good for bottom line, right? Where the pricing is fantastic on those deals because it's we're, we're there at the first moment. And then we're able to make introductions that then often lead to, I mean, I have specific stories. I, I wish I could share the specifics here, but a few months later, they're able to raise a round that's twice or three times the valuation that we had invested in. And so it's good for all of us. It's good for everybody to find these diamonds in the rough and, you know, make a invest with conviction, make a bet on them. I, I have to say as an aside, I was laughing with a friend the other day, thinking about how many investors I know who say, well, here's my long, you know, drawn out set of boundaries. And I'm the number of investors I need that say, and I never lead. I mean, like, I get it. And also listen to the words coming out of your mouth, like have an opinion, make the call. There's so much in the, in the world of investing where people are waiting for other people to make their move and then get in on it. But the whole point is if you can have confidence in what you're seeing and know that you can add value and help bring that entrepreneur and that company from here to here, my gosh, like jump in, right? Do that. Be confident, invest with conviction. Sure. Well, and it's interesting because, you know, that that's going to be one of my questions is if these individuals are under networked, you know, how do you even find somebody like that? And when you do find them, what's normally their reaction? Is it, you know, what you're offering is, is that something that they're looking for? Are they looking for that network? Are they looking to get more connected? Are they looking for these types of resources or talk to me a little bit about this process? Yeah. I mean, it's hard to generalize, but I'd say, so Yohei worked for years and years in accelerator and incubator programs. He started several corporate accelerators. He has this incredible community of folks that see entrepreneurs with their very first application to a program of any kind, right? And they'll let Yohei know about it, or he'll know how to how to find them and know that there'll be that one press release mid-April about all the people that, you know, got into this program, whatever it is. I mean, that's a pretty public thing. It, it'd take a very long time to describe all of the ways and all the places where he sort of has his antenna tuned to, but he just has a lot of conversations with a lot of people trying to find who's doing what at an early stage. And then, yeah, reaching out to them. It's not always a fit. It's not always the right moment, but we do our best to, I guess I keep saying to reach out, but we do our best to identify and celebrate those, those early few first few steps with entrepreneurs and to see you know, I think we're, we're getting better and better all the time, but I'm really proud of the portfolio we've built so far and proud of the folks that we found and then carried through to the end of the process where we, we are able to bring them in and fund them and then help boost them to series A and beyond. Okay. Well, so here's my next question, because I'm curious how you pull this together. So you have four kids, right? Mm-hmm. You're an investor, you're an advisor, right? Uh, yeah. you, you teach, right? Don't you teach? Do you I still do. teach at the, the Marshall School of Business? I do. So you do that and, and you do all this stuff. Like, how do you find time to like manage all this? I mean, are you just like constantly going crazy, like working, staying up late, no, sacrificing? I mean, I, I'll do like an all nighter. I'll do like a late night, one or two nights a week now that I can. And I have my littlest one sleeping through, through the night. <laughs> so now I'm available again. I can usually, I don't want to jinx it, be somewhat rested enough to go late some nights, but I don't have any secret thing. I, I think that when you're busy enough, you get, you have to be efficient and you have to just say no to a lot. So I guess that's the best, most helpful answer I can give. I try to just be efficient. I have amazing teams and I do what I'm really good at and can do fast and well. And I'd like to think at a high level of quality. And then I have incredible people 
surrounding me that, that want to follow these dreams through as well and, and get it done. So I can't say enough about Yohei. I partnered on Tapped. I can't say enough about Anne, <laughs> my very first employee virtual, virtual co-founder of Altruist. She's been there from the beginning. And I don't know, we have about a dozen other folks that have contributed at this point, even though we were just a few months in. And I mentioned Altruist, we haven't talked about that yet. But yeah, on all the, all the things that I'm doing, um, efficiency and team. Are the two main answers. Oh, also, I guess the third funny part is my kids are always with me doing things. And I, I actually, as I was thinking about what to build next, I really was excited to do something that they could understand, genuinely be helpful with and get excited about. So they, they, they know what mama's doing day to day. So I'm having a lot of fun building this with them, building altruists with them. I definitely want to get into altruists because I think it's very fascinating what you're doing there. But let me ask you this first, because you said something that's interesting about saying no. Somebody who's smart, driven, ambitious like you, I'm sure a lot of opportunities come your way. So do you find yourself really disciplined of saying no to certain things and really knowing yourself and saying, hey, these are my strengths and this is like my passion over here. And I'm only going to focus on this or like, how has that progressed over time? I think saying no is a, it's a form of confrontation, right? It's a, it's a bit of a rejection, even if it's wrapped in, I really wish I could. I'm so sorry. Thank you. And maybe another time, right? It's still, a, it's still a rejection. <laughs> and I think I'm grateful that as I've gotten older, I'm 43. I feel like I'm in a really sweet spot of life where I'm comfortable in my own skin. I, I know enough to be dangerous. <laughs> I know enough. <laughs> I have some skills under my belt, but I, I'm really comfortable saying no, because I, I understand and I appreciate that when I say no to the things that are not mission critical for me, I am doubling down and saying yes to the mission critical things. I am honoring them. When I say no to a meeting I don't need to take, I'm saying yes to getting the other thing done that I really do need to get done. Or when I say no to whatever, an evening event that's, you know, I love, I love that stuff. I mean, we're all getting back out there post COVID, but if I say no to something outside of regular work hours, I'm saying yes to time with my family and they're my priority above all things. So I keep in the back of my mind why I'm saying no. And I think of it truly as a yes to something else. So it makes it easy. It makes it, it's not personal. <laughs> Nobody is going to defend my time other than me. I mean, my husband really helps and my kids are, you know what I mean? Like nobody's going to swoop in and incent me to protect myself. Nobody, that doesn't happen. So I'm, I realize it's the most precious thing I've got and I'm the only defender of it. (laughs) Unless I build in some pretty intense and specific accountability with other friends and family members. But so it's up to me to do that. And and again, it's not personal. I I think about that a lot too. It's, this is what I've said I'm going to do in the world. And if I really want to do that, I got to do it and not the other stuff. And 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 also you can see, even though listeners can't see, you can see my office, like it's a little messy. There's kids toys over there. It's kids books over there. It is what it is. Again, I think any parent knows you, you choose your battles, you get the things done that are truly important and I'll clean my house in 20 years. It'll be fine. (laughs) <laughs> exactly. So as a social entrepreneur, you probably have a, a ton of ideas. Are you the type of person who thinks to yourself, okay, I'm only going to pursue big noteworthy ideas. Or do you yeah. think sometimes it's okay to say, Hey, you know, this idea, I mean, it's a little idea. I'm going to pursue this. Or are you, are you pretty disciplined with that? I don't know. Discipline would be very complimentary to myself on that. I, I, I definitely, my, my husband would be laughing so hard right now. I have a new idea every other day and a lot of them are goofy and silly and of course not worth doing, but they're fun to think about. They're fun to think through. And I like imagining that one day I'll get around to some of the silly small ones, but like, 
I get way, I get way more excited. Again, it's the yes, no thing. What, what do I get even more excited about? I get excited about taking a swing at, at things that are either going to be really paradigm shifting and behavior changing or culture shifting in the world, or they will just crash. <laughs> like That's okay. That's okay too. I mean, I prefer, I'm going to do everything in my power not to have that happen, but that's more fun to me. Absolutely. So let's talk about this new venture that you've taken on, Altruist. Yeah. Uh, obviously, it's a massive industry. I, I didn't realize how big the industry actually is, but maybe you can explain what it is, where it came from, and and what you're doing with it right yeah. now. Sure. Gladly. So growing up, I volunteered a lot. And even though I look back, it was like a smattering of experiences. I was only a dedicated volunteer a handful of times where I'd go every week, that kind of thing. But otherwise, like showing up every once in a while at a soup kitchen or, you know, whitewashing a wall that had gotten graffitied or whatever it was, those encounters, those experiences changed me. And I got the message along the way that the most valuable thing I could contribute to the world wasn't actually my spirit change, but it was actually me. It was me, my head, my heart, my, my hands showing up and doing something. And I really wanted I want my kids to get that too. I want them to know that. I want them to see that as a family, we value showing up in the world that way, that we value generosity and compassion and that we can all actually do the thing itself. We can actually do the work itself that can be helpful to other human beings and to us. So it's been hard. <laughs> um, it's been hard. I can't even you know, go into the last year and a half with COVID, although that really did affect us and made it a million times harder to get out of the house and actually do service projects together with varying level, you know, kids of different ages, different abilities, different interests, different nap schedules, different needs, everything. Not only is it hard to find volunteer opportunities, period, as an adult, even it's hard to schedule them. Very few of them are open to kids. And even if they are, all the stars align when you get right down to it. And I'm actually rattling through things that are listed off in a particular Stanford study that informs a lot of how I shaped what I'm about to describe to you. But there are four main reasons people volunteer less than they aspire to. 90% of people say they want to volunteer more. So take that, right? So it's very aspirational that people say they don't actually get it done more because one, hard to schedule, hard to find, right? Two, hard to find. Three, volunteer activities are not always that interesting. Like it's the same old thing that needs done. These are not my words. This is the studies, you know, the gist of the study. And then four, which I find just crazy and maddening, beautiful, all the things. The fourth reason in this study is more or less, and I'm doing air quotes, listeners, no one asked me. I mean, I, I read that and my heart just like broke because I think the world is asking you, like there's, there's asks, you just got to listen. They're all over the place. Everybody's asking for stuff all the time. So I thought about all those things. I thought about my own experiences and how hard it is to get out the door. And it's, it just really is an essential non-negotiable thing I want to get done with my family. I want to be a family that shows up and does this stuff. But I, I, I struggled so much. I thought I need to, I need to reinvent this. <laughs> This encounter. And you look at volunteerism as an industry, it's a $300 billion industry. And there's wow. just not that much innovation. There's been some attempts to solve for hard to find and schedule volunteer opportunities. There's technology, you know, there's platforms where you can search and sort and find things near you and all that's great. But in terms of the latter two, like when will actually somebody go and do that work, right? Climb over all these walls to find and schedule an opportunity that may or may not be that intriguing to them or may or may or may not be a great fit for their skill level. And again, just add all this on with kids, like it's complex. And if you look at other stats, parents are the most likely to volunteer. They're the most hungry to get this done. I think they, we all feel, I would like to generalize for all parents, (laughs) we all feel this desire to do that all important values transfer to our kids. And 
you know, of course there are differences, but again, another 90%er um, stat here, 90% of parents say the most important quality they hope to give to their children, that they hope their children are caring. Now, kids say back that they think their parents want them to be successful or smart or all these other things, but parents are trying in our, in our hearts. We want our kids to be caring. Smush all this together. <laughs> I've been thinking about this for years. And so what I came up with over COVID with a brand new little baby in the house, just really wanting to get this right um, as soon as possible, came up with altruists. And we create kid-friendly, do-at-home, volunteer and giving projects that arrive in a subscription box to your front door. So just the way endless amounts of STEM activities are delivered through this mechanism and, you know, foodie, help your kid do new recipes kits or help your kid be more fashionable. Here's some new clothes every month or crafts or whatever the heck it is. They're all basically a box full of, hey, be a better parent by blank, right? <laughs> making your kid more sciencey, more creative, more whatever. This is let's all teach our kids to be givers. And so altruists provides context. So the first box is on homelessness and housing. We provide context on the issue, you know, fun facts, not so fun facts, um, answers to tough questions, words that need to be defined you might not know about the issue. And then that's part one. Part two is an empathy building exercise where you actually learn about stories of people who are encountering this issue in a very different way than you might have encountered it in your own life. Third is the actual volunteer activity. Like in the housing box, kids make a keychain that's distributed to families in Mexico who are just moving into their very first homes for the very first time. Homes that are built by our nonprofit partner. So they, the kids' keychains and little notes get to be inserted into, into this incredible like trajectory-changing moment of the families and of the nonprofit's work. There's a donation included, $5 that is already directed to the nonprofit that we work with. And there's a little um, exercise kids can go to to sort of direct that. And then last but not least, there's a whole set of other sort of do more resources that we provide so that kids and families can go deeper. I mean, I want this to be a way I want to repackage, really reinvent and redistribute volunteerism, but I also want it to be a bridge to all of the existing options that exist out there. So families want to go deeper. I want to help them do that too. Well, and I think it's so interesting, and especially when you talked about the four reasons why people don't typically volunteer, because, you know, I, I know for myself, like if a friend asked me, Hey, Steve, can you show up on Saturday? Help me move some stuff. 10 o'clock. It's like, yes, you know, 10 o'clock I could be there. I could put on my calendar. Bam. I commit. I mean, there's so much need out there. Right. Yeah. But it's like, how do you bring awareness to that? And more importantly than that, and I think this is what you're trying to accomplish here is like, how do you instill it in the hearts of the youth? Right. So it becomes like this pattern that it becomes habitual. It becomes like embedded within them, part of their personality. And that's what I love about what you're doing is because you know, I think parents, they obviously want their kids to volunteer, to serve, to contribute to society, but it's just, we get so busy or you don't know how to yeah. do that. Or, I mean, it's, so I, I think it's great what you're doing. Thank you. I mean, I genuinely believe it's already there. It's not like we all want to help. We all want to be useful. It's there. And in kids, it's there in the most gorgeous, full, full way that hasn't been beaten down by the world. Like they believe they can help. They want to do it. It's just, we just need to channel it and give them opportunities. So this truthfully, like what I hope and I imagine and I've been hearing good feedback so far. We just shipped our first boxes weeks ago. Parents are able to, like, it, it gives them this, this excuse, this reason, forcing function to stop and have the conversation that they maybe have wanted to have for a long time about this issue and to carve out an hour and do something. And then what kids walk away with is the knowledge that not only did they learn about this thing, but they did something to help another human being. 
they did, they, sure. they, they volunteered, they, they were activated, you know, they were, they were able to make someone else's life a little bit better. And I think <laughs> I, as, as, as we began this conversation about business and like, I didn't want to be a part of things that were tricky and giving people stuff they didn't need and putting sure. pressure and, you know, manipulating a, a customer. This is, there's no hard sales necessary when you offer people a way to be their best selves. Like, it's not like you have to convince somebody to want to contribute. They, we sure. all want to do that. So my goal is just to like step back, create a no pressure <laughs> set of options. And I hope and pray that people see it and know about it and then choose it because it'll help them do and become, you know, more of who they are, who they want to be more of who they already are in there. They just, it gives them a way to carry that out. Well, and it's fascinating, I think, because with all the the mental health issues, you know, especially that have come about because of the whole pandemic, you know, I believe that one of the best ways, I mean, there's a lot of ways, but one of the best ways, at least for me to overcome, you know, that mental health issues, if I'm ever feeling like depressed or dark or whatever, yeah. is to get out there and serve, right? To go out there and like, forget about yourself and, you know, go help other people. And like, when you do that, you know, you're, you're less focused on your own issues. It doesn't mean that your issues aren't real and they're not valid. I, I sure. totally get that. But, you know, to be able to have like a vehicle to think about other people and to contribute, I, I think it's huge. And it, yeah. it's funny how like it, it comes full circle, you know, from your TED talk, you know, your TED talk, you're talking yeah. about, Hey, here's money, right? Money by itself. It has utility and it can definitely bless the lives of many people, but you take money plus love right? Money plus a community, money plus this support system. And that's really where the power comes in. It's not just money itself, right? Money's just money. And I think the same thing, you know, is true with what you're doing now. And I, I think it's great how like your whole life is built around this like central purpose. It's just manifested in different ventures and things that you're doing. You described that so beautifully. And I, I have to say, I really do feel, you know, resonance with this in a way that I, I don't think I've felt since Kiva. i I've done a lot in the last decade and the investing is super important to me and feels very resonant as well. But this is, this is a, this is their special one for me. And I'm, I'm very excited to see this through. And I hope that I hope that anybody listening can check it out and try try it out. I mean, I, I think it's a really joyful experience. When I, I think that like you're showing me the packaging before we started today. And I mean, it's beautifully designed and it, it's like simple, right? Simple to do. It's not complex, you know, these massive like books or data dissertations okay. about, you know, homelessness or some of the, the other social issues that we're trying to deal with. I think it's great. And I, I mean, I, I know for myself, I'm going to go check it out because I think it's cool to like get this package in the mail, be able to bond with my kids. Right. And not only are we like strengthening our relationships, but we're doing something like together and like helping yeah. them become better people and like bringing that, that good nature out of themselves, I think is, is pretty cool. Awesome. Like, I really can't wait to hear what you think. I'm all ears. So help me make this better and better. I want, I want all the feedback. So how do people like, okay, somebody's listening. They're like, wow, that's really yeah. cool, Jess. Yep. What do I do? They just go to the website. It's, you sign it's up. It's a monthly subscription. That's right. Yeah. Sign up. It's altruists and it's two L's, A-L-L-T-R-U-I-S-T-S, plural. So altruists.com. And you can do a pay as you go, pay every month. You can do three months, six, six months, whatever. And eventually in a few months, we'll also have sort of a store where once the subscriptions get out and you know our subscribers will be the first to get each issue box, but some of those will also end up in the store. We're also going to do other issues that will just live in the store that you can do as a one-off. So issues that are ones that we want to 
super, you know, very much respect parents' um, decisions to, to talk about these things at their own pace, or maybe there are issues that, you know, there might be touchy subjects, right, or issues upon which reasonable people disagree. So we want to provide lots of options. So eventually, you can sort of shop by issue and say, you know what, it just so happened that I don't know, this thing came up in conversation with my kid today. And I really want to not just read a book about it, I want to go do something about it. So imagine you could go in and then, you know, maybe you pass by a homeless person for the first time in your neighborhood, you go in and you opt in and you get this box and you, you get to do something in response to it. But otherwise the product that we have right now is the subscript subscription and it's awesome. It's about 50 bucks, sometimes a little less, depending on how much you pay in advance for your subscription. Cool. It's great. I, yeah. I think that's great. I think what you're doing, Jess, is, is absolutely wonderful. Keep up the good work. And Thank I think you. I'm just thinking to myself, like, dang, this could be a good gift to get give it to somebody instead of just a bunch of random crap, you know, that we, yeah. we often do. So thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for what you're doing. I know you're impacting a lot of people's lives. Thank you. And I think it's just it's so inspiring that you're you're doing what you're doing. So keep it up. Thank you so much. It's really been a joy to talk with you. Hey, thanks for tuning into the show. If there's any way I can be helpful to you and your business, or if you have feedback or ideas regarding this podcast, shoot me an email at contact at cultivar.com. I would love to connect. All the best.